And just like we would prefer to sit on the couch than, you know, maybe run a marathon. <laughs> Similarly, when there is an option between something easier and something harder, the thing that's somewhat harder often has a little bit of resistance. We often, you know, maybe are like, oh, I don't really want to do that right now. Or I'm tired. I don't want to use my brain in that way. Or I don't want to actually think about it. And so the interesting thing about this is that very often those feelings are not constant over the length of time you spend practicing. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. Today, my guest is Scott Young, author of Ultra Learning, Accelerate Your Career, Master Hard Skills, and Outsmart the Competition. Scott is somebody I first became aware of when a friend of mine recommended this book to me. And learning nerd that I am, I immediately picked it up, and I'm so glad I did. Scott is a sort of human guinea pig where he has created and executed a number of really remarkable learning projects, including the year without English, which he spent speaking no English, his native language, and became proficient in Spanish, Portuguese, Mandarin, and Korean. It's something I know many people wouldn't even have thought to do, let alone believe was possible, but Scott has done it. And in this book, and we touch on it in this interview, he tells you how you can achieve that same kind of mastery, not just in languages, but in anything, basically, whether it's computer science or cooking or gardening or, you know, you name it. He talks about what it means to be an ultra learner, being self-directed and intense and goes into Again, how we can do that. We explore in this interview whether or not it's true that each of us possesses genius, which I assert we do. And I ask him to share his opinion. In that part of the interview, he shares a really remarkable story about three sisters who were pushed to become chess masters. And they did. We talk about focus, how to have more focus, how to sustain it as a practical matter and whether you're looking to solve a complex problem or complete a specific task. We talk about procrastination, what it is, how to overcome it. And Scott is somebody who's been writing for a long time. He has, he started his own blog 13 years ago. When he was younger than 18, he's since written more than a thousand articles. He has free eBooks, courses, and he helps us explore what it means to get more from life. Scott believes that learning is the key to living well, and I happen to agree. We then get into the creative process, as we often do, talk about what his strategies are for taking an idea, vetting it, saving it, refining it, sharing it with other people in a way that they understand that he enjoys producing. So if you're into that kind of thing, you'll definitely want to stick around to the end and hear that. Scott is, to me, very remarkable. Oh, and the thing that he did, I think he was maybe most known for initially, 
is the MIT challenge, where he basically completed the work that's required to earn a degree in computer science. I might not be getting this totally right, Scott, so forgive me, but my understanding is that in one year, you took all the courses required to complete an undergraduate degree in computer science from MIT using their free and open source courseware, the videos, lectures, and tests that they put online, and did all that in just 12 months. Really remarkable. I know when he started out with that project, he had scheduled 11 hours of study a day. It's pretty hardcore. So Scott is somebody who definitely practices what he preaches and from whom you can learn a lot whether you just want to get better at a hobby or you want to take your career to the next level or you're in education, you teach others. I think that you will enjoy and benefit greatly from this book, Ultra Learning, and this interview with Scott H. Young. Please enjoy. Scott, welcome to the School for Good Living. Oh, yeah. It's great to be here. Yes. Will you tell me, please, what's life about? What is life about? Well, that's a big question. You know, it's funny because even though this is the sort of subject of the book that I'm, I'm talking about on lots of podcasts these days, I really do think that life is about learning. I think that that is what we are designed to do is to adapt to the environment. That's what our brain is for. Is It's an organ of learning. And so I really think that being able to adapt and change and not only understand the world that we live in, but also how we can make an impact in it is at the fundamental point of what life is about. Maybe that view is why I knew we were going to be such good friends, <laughs> because I, <laughs> I share that perspective. And your book, Ultra Learning, I think is amazing. And I want to get into what it is and who you wrote it for. But before we do, before we even jump to that, I, I just want sure. to ask you, Tell me about your childhood, because mm. I'm really curious, what were the toys you played with? What were the activities you engaged in? Where did you grow up? Like, what is the yeah. childhood upbringing that results in this kind of study and, and work? Yeah, so I think I've always been a curious kid. I've always been interested in things. You know, I can remember one story. I, I was really like when I was in about, I'm trying to think of how old I would have been, maybe like grade one or two, I was really interested in rocks. So I was like a really cool kid, right? And, <laughs> and I remember we went, this was a family vacation. We went, we went somewhere in Alberta and they had a lot of like stones. I think they were like a volcanic stone, the kind of pumice stones are like little spongy stones. And I just had like buckets of these stones that I wanted to bring home in the car. <laughs> My parents were like, okay, we can't take every rock back from, from Alberta when we're going back home. And so I think I've always had this sort of tendency to get really interested in a subject and want to learn more about it, whether it's rocks or whether it was, you know, when I got a bit older, I was interested in computers and then I got interested in entrepreneurship. I got interested in business. So I've had these sort of different passions and interests. And I think that that was, you know, has always been a part of my life is being interested in subjects and wanting to know things and really wanting to know why something works the way that it does. And I think yeah. that has been a very fundamental drive in my life. And I think it was only later on that I kind of really saw that as being, you know, something that you could really pursue to extreme. It's just a little bit like the difference between, you know, a kid who kind of likes batting the ball on the beach with his dad with the paddle to being like, you know, oh, you can play tennis at an elite level. Like there, there's a correlation there, but I think it also requires a little bit of that inspiration to, you know, not just have curiosity, but to have that drive to really understand what's the process of learning itself. Yeah. Some of the learning projects that you've created for yourself, I just marvel at. And I actually want to to ask you, I want to start with them in the year without English, because sure. I had never thought, I mean, I've heard of immersion learning, of course, 
But to me, this seems like the kind of thing that a lot of people not only wouldn't have thought to create or do, but probably wouldn't have believed was possible to attain fluency in four different languages in 12 months is pretty remarkable. Will you will you start sharing with us about, you know, maybe an example of ultra learning by giving us some background and explanation of what the year without English is? Sure, sure. So first, just to clarify, because I think the problem with the word fluency, and it's one of the reasons I don't attach that word to the projects that I've done is just because it means a very broad range of things to different people. So yeah. if we look at what the definition of fluent means, it usually means that you can do things fluidly, that you don't have lots of pauses and hesitation. However, when we talk about languages, it often gets translated to mastery or the idea that you are perfectly proficient in all situations. And so by that latter benchmark, which quite a few people do hold, I would not have been fluent in any of the languages that I went on that trip. So in that case, if that was the standard you were holding me to, then it was a failure. But, but on but the I other think hand... That's, but I think that's probably yeah. being modest, by the way, for, for <laughs> what you did achieve, just based on what I've read and read online. You know? Yes, but I think, I think let's... But we can talk about this, though, because I think this is an important goal, is that so there is that idea of being, you know, like I could give a university lecture on my topic and I can, you know, debate things and I never make mistakes and I always sound perfectly articulate. And then there's a sort of, I think, a more modest goal that a lot of us have that we would like to have communications with people that don't speak English. So if you met someone who doesn't speak any English, you could have a friendship with them. You could have a conversation with them. You could see how they view the world. You could have maybe even a relationship with that person if, if you were so inclined. And that is something that I think is quite powerful. And so in some ways, that's a much more attainable goal. And so I think that that's the kind of goal that I was able to reach on this particular project. But at the same time, I think it's also something that a lot more people could attain than I think probably realize it. So, so just with that little background of the way that the project itself was a friend in mine and we were thinking about maybe going traveling and I had tried to learn a language before I'd, I'd tried to learn French before I was living in France for a year. This was a couple years earlier and I had found some difficulties with it. And so like a lot of these projects, it came not from confidence, but from frustration. And my frustration was that when I was in French, I was constantly surrounded by people who were speaking me in English all the time. And although I did, you know, really push hard and was able to learn some French after a year, it was kind of like I was thinking in my head, if that hadn't happened, if I had just been only speaking in French from the first day, not only would I have gotten more practice, which is obviously true, but all of my social relationships, the kind of people that you form around you, that you interact with on a regular basis, that would all be habitual to be done in French. So it would be something that's much easier to sustain in the long run. And so this became kind of a little bit of a, an obsession of mine. I even went back to France for a month and tried something like this out with French, which I'd already learned for a while. And so I became kind of convinced that, you know, this was a hypothetical ideal, that if, if you could do this, if you could create the right environment for yourself, you could learn a lot faster than even just what we typically think of, of like going to another country and living there and doing that, you could do even better than that. And so my friend and I were talking about traveling and I kind of mentioned this experience and we sort of got to talking about like what we'd like to do. And I mentioned that I was really interested in learning languages and we kind of got this idea of doing a trip where we would go to a different country every three months. And with the idea that when we would land in that country, from the very first moment, we would not speak to each other in with English or to anyone that we would meet. And I mean, there are some mild exceptions to this, so I don't want to say that we were perfect in applying that rule. 
But at the same time, what it meant is that all the friends we had, we spoke to them in Spanish, Portuguese, Mandarin, Chinese, or whatever language we were learning. And we were also speaking to each other. So when we were, you know, just at home alone and we don't really speak the language very well, we're, you know, using Google Translate and looking up words and how to say it. And so we were practicing a lot that way. Yeah, and that, I would say that, that for... That, that mm, by the way, if I, if I could just jump yeah, yeah, in for, sure. for a second, I've, I've realized when I travel, like if I travel to mm-hmm. a place where there's a, another language, that's yeah. the thing is like I'm in a bubble with yeah. the person I'm with. And then it's oh, yeah. just, you know, I'm taking the American culture and the English language with me everywhere and not not getting any of the benefit of that learning or the, the culture that's there usually, often, I should say. Well, that I think is one of the huge differences, I think, of our project versus even like a modest attempt where like, I'm going to go there and practice as much as possible, but like obviously not with people who speak English. I remember meeting someone who he actually did his PhD in China. So very fluent in Chinese, much better than I did. And we recorded a little conversation in Chinese sort of near the end of the project just to record it. And I remember him telling me after he was like, oh, that was like so weird. I've like never spoken in Chinese like to, you know, a couple of Westerners before. Like that just that just didn't occur. So it was one of those things that like even at that level he was at is like, well, this is just such a weird thing. Like obviously yeah. we would speak to each other in English with two white guys, right? And so... I think that was a major improvement of that project. And really, I would say for me, you know, even though I'm, I'm trying to be very specific when talking about the results that I think it generated, I was very impressed because my experience in Spain, which was the first country at, I felt like I learned Spanish better in three months than I had after an entire year of doing what I've been doing before in French, which I think is a is a pretty dramatic difference if we're talking oh, yeah. about the overall pace of, of learning. Oh, yeah. I mean, like in, in ultra learning, you talk about where people would ask like, well, did you learn the language well enough to give a taxi driver directions? And you were like, <laughs> yeah, you can do that. You can learn that in an afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I think that's that's the hard part about communicating it, I think, ideally. So the only country where I did an exam, so exams are, I don't think exams are necessarily always the most useful goal to reach, but they are somewhat more objective. So you're not just sure. like, what my opinion is about how well I learned it. And the only one I did an exam for was Mandarin Chinese, which I wrote the HSK for. So it's divided into six levels and I wrote the fourth. So it, again, if you, you'd have to really know what those exams are to know what that means. But I think if I had to go back and do it again, I probably would have done one for Spanish as well. But it was a little bit of a time constraint thing because you have to schedule the exam, but you're also traveling to yeah. another continent a few days later. So it can yeah. be a little bit tricky. But I think that, yeah, the ability that we were able to reach was definitely enough to, you know, have meaningful relationships, friendships, communicate with people and really live kind of a parallel existence in this other language for a period of time, which again, I think for me, at least when I go back to when I was learning languages in grade school, the idea that you could go somewhere for three months and come back with a kind of an ability that would allow you to forevermore travel to one of those countries and speak with local people and, you know, ask for directions and, you know, do anything that you want to do, I think is a pretty dramatic result. Yeah, I agree. So I'm interested to get your view on this question. I, I sure. sometimes just ask friends and we ponder and debate. But if you were to just estimate just for fun, and I know there's a lot of factors, technology and yeah. what, how you would apply it and stuff like this. What do you think the value would be if you could just write a check, you know, or make a bank transfer and in return, you would have absolute fluency in any given language or let's say one of the world's, you know, five major languages. What do you think that would be worth? on the open market if you could do that, like in the matrix? Oh, if, if people were like, if people were bidding on that, 
Yeah. Uh, it would definitely be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars because, and again, I think, you know, it is possible to learn a language and not use it. So it is one of those things that it's an asset that it's, if you choose to uh, use it, but if we just look at how much money people spend to learn English, let's say, which I, I would say that English is tends to be somewhat more useful language than other languages, just as its currency as an international language right now. But even so learning like Mandarin Chinese or Spanish has got to be pretty close just because of how large those populations of speakers are. And if you think about how how much people are currently paying to learn English in it's all countries around the world. It's, it's already huge. It's huge. Yeah. So I'm thinking that, you know, I remember reading a story a little while ago where I was talking about the, the person doing was saying about Japanese businessmen paying, quote, lawyer money, like the amount of money you pay for lawyer for like high quality tutors to improve their English. So I think there's definitely positions where having that communication ability is just enormous leverage, but not even just an economic thing. I think the fact is, is that if you count up the number of people that have English as a first language in the world, like it's a vanishingly small percentage. It's it, So really, most of the world is opaque to you. You feel like you have some sense of what's going on. You don't. You only have a sense of what gets translated into English and what gets talked about by other people who speak English and understand your culture and understand that they're meeting you more than halfway when they're doing that. So I find that, you know, for me, for instance, like not that I'm some China expert or anything, but even with my very limited appreciation of Chinese culture and, and language, it's often baffling to me how much stuff can be like reported in things like the New York Times and things like this. You're like, this is not reality at all, yeah, but people yeah. buy into it because yeah. it's opaque, because it seems yeah. hard to understand. And so I think that's the real value of it is just that the world just opens up to you when you're able to speak more languages or understand other cultures. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I know that to this point, a large part of our conversation has focused on language acquisition and mm. maybe maybe not doing a service to the listener by creating the larger context of ultra learning. And really, that's your, as I understand it, that's your forte is not just learning four languages in one year or doing the MIT challenge, which is pretty cool. And uh, I want to invite you to talk about, but maybe sure. we ought to back up just a little bit and, and talk about what is ultra learning? Right. So the way I define ultra learning is, well, let me, let me back up a bit before I start with definitions. So the the way that I started with this was viewing people who were just accomplishing incredible things, incredible intellectual feats where they were mastering something quickly or learning something in, in you know, in impressive and unorthodox ways. So people like Benny Lewis, who speaks 10 plus languages, people like Tristan Montebello, who in about seven months went from near zero public speaking experience to being a finalist for the world championship. People like Eric Barone, who learned all the aspects of video game design, things like art, music, programming, design, everything. And he ended up making a game that sold over 10 million copies. And so these are the kind of feats that I wanted to really analyze and understand in depth. And so there's a lot of these little examples and I, I list many of them in the book. And what I feel are the two most essential characteristics to this approach to learning that I think is different from how we typically think about it is one, that it's highly self-directed. So in contrast, most learning is guided by an institution or a teacher. So you go to a class and they tell you what to do, how to learn and what your goals ought to be. Whereas the self-directed learning project is like, okay, I'm gonna get really good at writing and then you get really good at it. And it's not about, okay, I enrolled in this class and then you just sort of sit back and say, okay, tell me what to do. The second thing, and I think this is perhaps even a more important thing, which is somewhat subtle because it only really kind of reveals itself once you start to understand the cognitive science, is that 
there are a lot of different research findings that all sort of point in the same direction. And the direction they point in is that something that is more effortful, something that is harder cognitively, that is more strenuous, maybe more frustrating, maybe a little scary at first, that these nonetheless are more effective for learning. And the outcome of this is that most people won't pick them by default. Most people, if you just say, what do you want to do to learn? They will pick the easier option, which is less effective. I'll and watch so, a video. <laughs> I'll yeah, just watch well, a video. I'll, I'll watching do a video, just, yeah, just reading a book, playing on an app. And if you can really understand the principles, if you can understand the mechanisms at work that, that underpin these kinds of accomplishments, then you can make adjustments. And if you are serious about it, willing to kind of take on that step, you can very often achieve things that seem kind of incredible to people who are doing the sort of inefficient method. Now, this isn't to say that, you know, all learning is easy or all learning is something that you can just complete in a blink of the eye. It's really the opposite of that. It's that true learning is hard work. But if you're willing to face that, I think that there's a lot more opportunities than most people realize that they could really get good at something that they hadn't really imagined before. Yeah. Well, and the examples that you use in the book, and it's part of what I really like about the book, is it, it, it doesn't just stay in a realm of theory, but you show, you know, these people and how they've, they've applied, you know, and they probably, I would imagine in many cases, didn't consciously do it, but they apply these principles that you have revealed, you know, these nine principles of, of ultra learning that we can all learn and find some way to apply with anything that we're, that we're doing. And, and one of the things that, that I thought was, was interesting, like, as I listened to you, you know, and as I read the book, is I would look at these, these people, and yes, they're incredibly high performers, and I have a tendency to go, oh, well, they're just, they're a genius, mm-hmm. or maybe they got lucky, or that's just an anecdote. And in some way, it seems like it could be easy to dismiss that, but I, I really get the sense as I read your book that it, there's more, like there is an underlying, there are concepts that we can apply to achieve consistently high results. You see it? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I would say this though, like I think the problem when we talk about talent and we talk about people who are very smart and this kind of thing is that it's very easy to look at someone who clearly is intelligent and talented and, and say something like, oh, well, you know, they're just very smart. They're very talented. And I think the problem with that is not that that's necessarily false. Like people are smarter than other people. And some people do have strengths and weaknesses. I'm never going to be an NBA basketball player, for instance, no matter how hard I try. Well, not with that attitude. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, I think what the what this conflates to is that when you see someone who has gotten really good at figuring out how basketball works, there's an assumption that, well, that's just all talent. There's nothing for me to learn. There's nothing for me to apply. But if if I were serious and I wanted to get a lot better at basketball, again, maybe not the elite level, but maybe at a level where I'm trouncing my friends and I'm, you know, competing in local leagues and stuff, you can actually get a lot of potential. Yeah. Or the best you can be. Yeah. Right. And so I think that uh, for me, the way that I feel about this is not so much that there is some fixed potential that we all have and that it's, it's something that we know about. But rather, I think that there's too much assumption that it's it's not that we, you know, like a lot of people will say, well, you have to believe it and you achieve it and this kind of thing. My feeling is that is that we want to introduce more doubt 
that we have all these beliefs about what we're capable of and that we just kind of take for granted that they're true. We take for granted that we're not good at drawing or we take for granted that we're not good at math or that we're not good at this or that we can't learn another language because we're too old. And we have these ideas. And so my idea is not to say, oh, yes, you can become the next Picasso or you can speak 30 languages, but rather to say you actually don't know whether you can do that or not. And so I think if you kind of flip that perspective and say that you're actually quite ignorant of your own potential, then that actually makes you more curious about it. It makes you more curious about like, well, what kinds of things could I do to, you know, increase my performance or do things better? Maybe I, I could get better at drawing. Maybe I could approach this in a way that's more successful. And so I think that approach of viewing it from the lens of doubt is often more useful than just saying, oh, everyone should be able to do this, you know, and it's just about like sucking it up and doing it. Yeah. I think we should just have more curiosity in ourselves. I, I really love that perspective. And, and, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to bash anybody, but I'm not a fan <laughs> of the grit, you know, concept and the willpower, stick to just you're somehow deficient and you need more discipline, you yeah. know, to achieve. But I love what you're saying about curiosity and, and having that, that being ignorant of your own potential. It's a really beautiful way mm-hmm. to say that. Yeah. So, okay. A few things that I want to, that I want to dig into here. One is you tell this story I'd never heard before. I thought it was pretty cool about the Polgar sisters. Mm, yeah. And and the larger question, anybody that doesn't know this, maybe we'll tell a little bit but about these these children. But the, the real question I want to get to is, what's your view? Do you believe that every person contains some form of genius just waiting to be expressed or realized? So let's start with the story first, and then I can kind of give my thoughts on the question, because this story is really incredible. And this is uh, Laszlo Polgar was a Hungarian kind of psychologist, educator. He just got in this head that he is going to just create genius children, which, and and it's funny because when you hear his letters where he's talking about it, the guy sounds like a total crackpot. Like, I mean, just like, just total kook that you're like, okay, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And the kind of funny thing is, is that you would believe that, except that he kind of actually did it. (laughs) And so, and so he had three daughters, uh, Susanna, Sophia, and Judith. And all of them, so he decided chess was going to be the thing that he wanted his children to really, truly excel in. And this is partially because chess is easily measurable. So you can really, you know, from the experimentalist point of view, you have ELO ratings and this kind of stuff. You can really see how good someone is in chess compared to, let's say, you know, art or math or something where achievement is a little bit more variable and nebulous. But also because if you are going to invest a lot of resources into your children, you want to pick the same kind of thing. And and not to mention that at this time period, it's like kind of hungry. This is like sort of pre-Berlin Wall falling down. Chess is kind of the gem of the kind of intellectual sphere of the socialist countries. And so for these reasons, he decides chess is going to be the, the domain that he's going to pursue. And so all three of his girls are have achieved amazing heights in chess. I believe both... Susanna and Judith were both grandmasters and Sophia reached international master. Now, both of these are like all of these, both international master and grandmaster are extremely difficult titles to reach that if you play chess your whole life, you probably won't get anywhere close to that, even if you are quite serious about it. And Judith is quite arguably the best female chess player of all time. She competed in the, the, like the world championship. I think she was in the top eight at one point for her ranking. So extremely, extremely successful chess player and so his whole approach was just that he was going to turn his children into chess grandmasters and 
He had them playing chess from a very early age. He got them very engaged in it, allowed them to sort of explore what their own interests were so that they could kind of bootstrap their own motivation so that they would guide themselves to doing it. And and what also I found interesting about this is that his approach to it was not the kind of, I'm going to, you know, hit you with a stick until you get a checkmate kind of approach. His whole approach was to try to kind of provoke a natural interest in it so that the girls would become more competitive and they would sort of foster their own development, which it seems to be is what's happened because even now, you know, kind of retired from professional chess unit and Zofia and stuff, they're still like talking about chess. They're still involved in chess education. So if you really were like talking about your terrible childhood, you probably wouldn't keep doing it even long after that. And so I think there is a lot of really tantalizing things about this story. Now, I don't think it's a model of scientific purity because we're dealing with a situation where you're raising your own kids and there's no control. And so this is not going to fly in any yeah. psychological investigation Small now. Small sample size. Yeah, you yeah. only got yeah. three, right. Yeah. And so there's a lot of things I think that make this so that you have to be hesitant about drawing overly scientific conclusions about it. But at the same time, I think that the kind of inspiration for it, I think the thing that would not be definitive proof, but just sort of raise interesting questions is just simply the idea that we all have capacities to be really, really good at things that are somewhat underexplored. Now, that's not a really firm statement, and I don't think I can make it much firmer than that. But my feeling from listening to this story is that, you know, if he had decided not to go with chess, like if he had decided not to go with that, it's probably the case that those girls would not have, you know, done that well in chess. Or, you know, another story that I think it kind of reflects this as well is my friend Tristan Montebello. He did this public speaking project that I mentioned, and he was like almost about to pursue his project in learning piano before I kind of discouraged him to do that for just rather selfish and arbitrary reasons on my part. But he, like, he like he lives above you, or what is it? Well, no, uh, this no, no, no. The the reason that I wanted to discourage him. Well, he was he was a guitarist before this. So a little sidetrack here, but he was a guitarist yeah. before this, and he wanted to do a piano project. And I thought, well, you getting really good at piano doesn't make a great story for my book because me people might say you're just already musical. So I kind of was like, I kind of dismissed his idea a little bit, and so he came back with public speaking, which now he became, you know, finalist for world championship. He totally changed his career. He's all about public speaking and communication. Now he has a consulting business. And I mean, this was like, this was on the hair's edge of like, he could have been teaching little kids chopsticks yeah. at, uh, at someone's <laughs> house right now if, if piano was the way that he went down. And so I think for a lot of us, we, we ignore our own potential. We ignore some of the things that we could learn. And we kind of take for granted that, well, you know, the things I'm good at are the things I'm good at rather than just those are the things that you happen to have certain experiences that pushed you towards being good at them. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's, I think that's accurate, you know, that we all have these capacities that, you know, we're maybe unaware of, or we don't have the motivation to ever come close to, you know, fulfilling. But what I wonder is, you know, well, I have a thought about how the father Polgar made that interesting yeah. or fun, you know, is yeah. one thing that yeah. might, might be worth exploring because there were very different things that he did that I think we could all do either with our own kids or maybe with ourselves or people mm -hmm. we teach. So let me, let me ask you that. And then I want to come back and follow this thread a little bit more about your view on genius, you know, sure, wh whatever sure. that means. But will you talk about the, the element of fun or enjoyment it, as it relates to learning? Like how important yeah. is that or how can we do more of it? So I think fun and 
learning are very interesting combinations because I've already kind of made the claim that often the thing that you need to do when you're learning is harder. So that sort of implies a certain sense of drudgery that if you want to learn things well, it needs to be, you know, kind of painful and that, you know, so that sort of sounds like the opposite of fun, right? Yeah. What What's fun is, is what's easy. But I don't actually think that's the case. If we look at, you know, the great flow researcher, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and his whole approach is that when we really feel engaged in things is when the difficulty level is manageable. So when things are too easy, we find them boring. When things are too hard, we find them frustrating. And so I wouldn't say that flow is always the right model for necessarily deciding how one should you know, optimize a learning project. But I do think what is interesting here is that the easiest option is not always the most enjoyable either. And so I think often what we really want to experience is we want to feel like we have a challenge that's at our level. We want to feel like there's a challenge that we can actually go out and do and accomplish. And so for me, what I really feel is that a lot of the learning methods, a lot of the principles that I think are more valuable are more strenuous and they require using your brain more. And so your brain is going to, I'm using your brain like it's a separate thing from yourself, but you will want to seek something that's easier, less effortful, just in the same way that we often kind of like, oh, let's sit on the couch and watch Netflix instead of reading a book or, you know, read this easy book instead of this hard book. But I think that that drift towards things being easier and less taxing isn't always what we enjoy the most in our lives. Sometimes our most enjoyable experiences are kind of peak experiences where, you know, you're winning the big game or whether you're, you know, really accomplishing something or whether you finally create something of value. Those are the experiences that we're often seeking, not just the ones that were the most relaxing. And so I think fun and difficulty often kind of go hand in hand. And so you can often see it as a little bit of a game. And if you can adopt a kind of playful attitude towards that difficulty, I think it's a lot easier to approach. Yeah, I I think you're right. So I want to go back to this this conversation Mm -hmm. about genius. And and part of it is, um, you know, because this in, in the coaching that I do, I actually suggest to people that they do in fact possess a genius, you know, whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and then I qualify that by saying, you know, I don't know whether or not that's true. I don't. Yeah. But I know that my experience of life, I know two things, <laughs> that my experience of life is different when I believe it. Yeah. And, and number two, the results I produce are different when I believe it. Mm-hmm. So that idea of like consciously, like having that doubt, but also having the willingness to believe. And, 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 and I got, you know, I kind of arrived at this conclusion by looking at my dad, who was a very, very successful entrepreneur. He's deceased now, but he built an amazing group of companies that's still here, multi-billion dollar group of companies. And when I look at how he did it, and and I would try to reverse engineer his success so I could share it with others. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I saw was, well, he he was brilliant and he worked 90, 200 hour work weeks for 20 years. Like, yeah, duh, do that. Anybody can do it, you know? And I wanted to, I, I wanted to say to people, you know, and I, and in an empowering way and not a BS kind of way, that it's like, look, you do have this genius. You can find it and share it. And you don't have to kill yourself, you know, by working mm-hmm. yourself to death to do it. But so that's kind of where I'm coming from and asking this is, is, you know, do we have a genius? And, and if we weren't pushed by our parents at three years old or, you know, some other external <laughs> yeah, yeah. force, do, do you think that, that we can find one and, and share it? So I tend to be more optimistic than Laszlo Polgar was about the malleability of our, of our adult selves to learn new things. So it does seem to be the case that there are some limited categories of things that young children seem particularly adept at learning. So if we're talking about language learning, for instance, 
young children seem to be better at learning pronunciation than adults. And this is sort of evidence when you see that the age that someone immigrates to a country, somewhat independent of the amount of time they've been in the country, determines how strong their accent is. That being said, though, a lot of people overinterpret that. So a lot of people will say, well, it's not actually just that young children are better at learning pronunciation, but that they're better at learning languages, period. So that if you are over 20 or over 30, you cannot learn another language. Now, it turns out the research doesn't bear this out. And so there's a really great book called Second Language Acquisition Myths. And one of the things they talk about is that Actually, young children learn languages fairly slowly, and it kind of makes sense because they don't have another language (laughs) to learn. When they are learning a language, they are learning it for the first time. They have no reference point. And so children often take quite a long time from when they're hearing sounds to producing intelligible sentences. And, And we adults just kind of take that for granted. So when someone says to you, when you're speaking, you know, like another language and they, you're speaking Spanish, and they say, oh, you sound like a five-year-old. You should take that as a compliment because that yeah. child has been listening to Spanish for five years <laughs> in total yeah. immersion. And yeah. if you can sound like that after, you know, a couple months, you're doing a good job. On the other hand, I think that part of the problem, part of the reason we've we've come to believe this about ourselves is that very often we approach things in a way that's not very effective. So the language learning example As an adult, typically how you learn things is nothing close to immersion, nothing close to actually using the language to communicate regularly. It's a lot of study. It's a lot of textbook practice, maybe maybe more practice in this kind of academic setting than actually communicating with people. And so when you look at people who are in situations of immersion where they actually have to use the situation a lot. So one of the one of the examples used in this study was, I think it was Mormon missionaries when they're going to other countries and they have to actually like go door to door and, and speak to these people in that language. And so they are approaching it from that perspective that they often learn the language quite well within let's say six months to a year or something like that. And so this is an example in my mind of how there is a grain of truth to some of these things. There's a grain of truth to like, if you started really early, you might have some advantages. But at the same time, again, I think that the way that I view it is that the the potential that we have, the way, places you could go, the places that you could see, the things you could learn, the things you could get good at is much, much larger than we typically think. And we tend to straightjacket ourselves into the things that we were good at in the past or these ideas about what we might be able to accomplish just because of some sort of happenstance of you went down this path and that's sort of the path of least resistance going forward in the future. Yeah, totally. And and that's to say nothing of social conventions, you know, and upbringing, you know, this kind of thing. Oh, that's so, huge. Well, you know, yeah. we're, we're talking about language learning a lot. That's You know, when doing this project, I can't tell you how many times people would be kind of like, oh, like, that's kind of weird. Like, why are you doing it like this? You know what I mean? And so it's you have to have that sort of self-confidence to try to do something a little bit different. My my friend Tristan de Montebello, who, you know, again, this is a guy who in seven months, he wins the uh, finalist for the World Championship of Public Speaking. And then he ends up, you know, totally having a career change, building a business off of it like as successful as you could imagine possibly being yeah. if you decide I'm going to get into public speaking. And he was telling me that a lot of people are like, oh, like, why, why are you taking this? So serious? Like, like, this is the outcome. And then the still the question is kind of like a confused, why are you doing this kind yeah. of thing while he's doing it? So I think if you're susceptible to that, if you're the kind of person that, you know, when someone says, oh, why are you doing this? You kind of shut down emotionally. It is going to be challenging because yeah. People often have a quizzical look at someone who really wants to learn something well, even when the benefits are so apparent and so obvious. Yeah. 
Well, and my guess is that many of those people were asking him because they don't have a clue as to why they're doing whatever it is they're doing. <laughs> you know, they're just true, trying true. to figure it out. So, okay, let me ask you about motivation because um, yeah. my wife and I have this conversation sometimes about whether or not it makes sense to pay our kids when they get good grades. Mm. And this whole thing about external versus, you know, in extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. So, Scott, do you think I ought to pay my kids if they get A's? Well, here, I'll say this to start out because I know everyone loves when a childless man gives parenting advice. So, so <laughs> thank so you for qualifying. I will say that. this, I will say this, that you have been duly warned that uh, <laughs> I have, I have no, I have no direct practice here. And so you, you can freely ignore anything I have to say. And so I would probably say no. And you know what? It's funny because you mentioned that. And I remember when I was a kid, so and not, not my parenting experience, when I was a kid, some other kids in my class were, this was the setup, that when they got good grades, their parents would give them some money after a good report card. And I remember, you know, being the entrepreneurial little kid that I was, and I see this happening and I'm kind of like, oh, what's going on here? Like, I'm getting better grades than they are and I'm getting diddly squat. So I went to my parents and I said to them, you know, well, I see that this is happening, kind of like, why why can't I have that? And, you know, it's a, it's a testament to my parents that they kind of sat me down and, and spoke to me like an adult and they said, no, you know, what we feel is that, you know, to do well at something is its own reward. And if you, you know, if you pay someone money to do it, then they're not going to see it as having its own intrinsic value. And so I, I remember that conversation, even if I was a little bit, well, that's a little stingy at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember that conversation and I'm somewhat glad of it now because I think that very often we we tie doing things to an extrinsic reward. We tie it yeah. to you will, if you do this, you'll get this reward. And I think sometimes that also discourages us from really thinking about why we're pursuing things and what we want to get out of it. And so if the goal is, again, even just to get a grade, even if it's not just to learn something deeply, I think that can sometimes distort our incentives. So again, take, do whatever you want because I don't have kids. So you can, yeah. uh, you can freely ignore any of that advice, but that was just my, my personal experience growing up. Yeah. That, that, you know, that's my view too, is that that an activity, and I know school is one of these things that, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's legally required for kids until a certain mm -hmm. age. And, you know, so there's the law and, you know, all this. But my my view is, yeah, if somebody doesn't want to learn something, you know, if they really don't want to learn it, and I think it's been attributed to Hemingway, the saying, mm -hmm. never do what you truly do not want to do, <laughs> you know, which, yeah. you know, again, take that with a grain of salt because he killed himself in a shack in Idaho. But... <laughs> You know, not She's before winning a Nobel right, Prize yeah. in literature and a Pulitzer. Well, but I think there's something really valuable in that and truly knowing what you want and why you want it and doing it for that reason and not because yeah. there's some incentive or punishment. But Well, if I, you want some more unsolicited parenting advice, <laughs> I, I've been thinking about this because sometimes people will ask me about how can they apply this kind of idea for their kids. And I think I don't have any strong advice on like, this is how you ought to raise your children. But one of the things I think we, we often take for granted is we just assume that kids don't know what they're doing and they need to be told what to do from adults. And I think we often should give our children more credit for being kind of independent agents that are pursuing their own goals. Now, they're not always the goals that we have in mind for them, you know. Yeah. Maybe they do really think that, you know, being cool at school matters a lot more than getting good grades, even though you know that in grade three, being cool is not important at all. <laughs> right. But you might have those feelings about it. But I think that one of the things that I would want to do when I have children is I would want to not just try to from the top down tell them these are the things they ought to learn and these are the things they ought to be good at but 
try to ask them what things they'd like to be good at, what things they would like to know more about. And maybe it's not something that you care about. Maybe it's a video game or maybe it's, you know, making little models of things or, but it could also be something that actually might be valuable for them later. I know that for me, kind of the initiations of my own entrepreneurial success came from wanting to do little computer programs and things like that. And so I think when you see that interest, then you can come in and sort of say, okay, well, I do actually know a little bit about how you can achieve some of those things. And so if you can coach them on achieving their own goals, I think you're kind of co-opting their own interests and ambitions of things. And so this isn't to say that school isn't important or that they have, that there's not things that they don't have to do. But I think that very often we approach it from the perspective of, you know, this is what I think is ideal and I'm going to, I'm going to make that from the top down what yeah. you have to do. And we don't really think about, you know, individuals from that perspective that they have their own motivations and trying to tap into that. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I get that. And my mom, by the way, she, she paid me a penny a page to read when I was a kid. Penny a, a page. A penny a page. You know, I think even with inflation, that's not that much. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I read yeah. and, and even with that, because yeah. my, my contention is that extrinsic motivation does in fact ultimately throttle or kill intrinsic motivation. But I still love to read. So, you know, yeah. my, my sample and, size of one disproves my own theory. <laughs> and, you know, that's but that's a good example, though, is, you know, give books that the kid actually wants to read. Right. So that's yeah. also part of it. You know, like I, you know, J.K. Rowling, I think, had, earns earns an prize from society for convincing 12 year old kids to read 600 page books over a weekend. I mean, this yeah. is this is very this is a very important thing that often you know, if you just assign reading that the kids aren't interested in, they won't read it. Like it's, yeah. it's also related it's to that as well. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. So uh, there are at least two more things I want to ask you about before we transition. And one of them is, one of them is focus. Mm-hmm. One of them is about like cultivating and sustaining focus. And the other is, this may be related to that because it's, a, it's about arousal. And as mm. you write in your book, not the sexual kind, but the kind <laughs> that perhaps yeah. is the optimal state in which we learn, mm-hmm. you know, how yeah. to, and maybe that's related to focus, but how we can, and maybe, maybe we start there. Will you, will you, sure. it, 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 and I just want to give us a context to this part of the conversation, how much yeah. I appreciated learning some concepts about learning in your book, things like <laughs> transference, you yeah. know, and about retention. And, you know, yeah. like there was a lot that I think anybody who's involved in the field of education even with if they've got a degree in it, they're going to learn some things in here that are going to be immediately useful to them. Well, the, one of my goals when writing this book is that I wanted to write a book that I would have enjoyed reading. And so one of the challenges is if you have a lot of familiarity with the subject is that it can become kind of like you're just saying the same things that everyone already knows. And so I wanted to make sure that I included some things that that were new to me when I found yeah. out about them. Now, I'm, admittedly, yeah. I'm not a PhD level expert in cognitive science or educational psychology. So some of these things may be obvious to uh, someone of that caliber. But at the same time, you know, there were lots of little ideas that were unexpected for me. And so, you know, we're talking about arousal. I think that was one of them is that I kind of always had this idea of more focus being better, right? You should always be more focused. And there's actually an interesting little kind of side area of research about how alertness or kind of how focused your attention is and how it relates to not only task performance, but learning. And it turns out that if you have a very narrow, simple task, that more alertness tends to be better, although it can exceed a certain point. However, if you're dealing with more creative tasks, if you're dealing with tasks that require problem solving and deep thinking, it actually might be the opposite, that having a more diffuse 
mode of thinking is more valuable. And it seems to be, and again, I'm, I'm stretching a little bit here on the analogy. So if the mechanism isn't exactly this, then the neuroscientists will have to forgive me. But one way of thinking about it is that when you have a very narrow range of focus, that the patterns that are running in your brain are running kind of over a narrow range very strongly. And if you have kind of a mind wandering diffuse state, it is more like there are more random connections that don't seem relevant to the topic that are also getting you know, the mind wandering daydreaming kind of state where you're not really okay, let's stay on task and everything that is in my mind has to be related to this, but it's related to lots of things. And this may actually help you work around problems because if you can't see the problem, if it's not directly obvious how to solve this problem, then a little bit more of a diffuse stance can sometimes link up connections in your mind that will solve the problem, but weren't obvious from the beginning. And so I think that this actually weighs in favor of taking breaks and daydreaming and letting your mind water a little bit while you're learning. And so I think there's a fine balance to walk because sometimes what we mean by daydreaming is just do some other activity that is not related to this at all. And just because you're you want to be lazy and you don't actually want to work on it. But then there's also the sense that, you know, just, oh, you're beating yourself up for, you know, letting your mind wander, I think can also be dangerous as well. Yeah. And to maybe make this a little more specific and, and admittedly, you know, I'm looking to make sure that I, I've got it for myself. And, mm-hmm. and by the way, this is something you said that in the book that I thought was really fascinating when you say human beings don't have the ability to know with certainty how well they've learned something. Mm, yes. Like, like we think we know until we go to apply it or teach it to somebody, right? Yes. And then it's no, like all and, of a sudden we don't know. That's pretty amazing. And I'm experiencing but that that's right now. A- that's a so I would I would put it further than that and I think that it's that we actually lack most self-knowledge we actually have really no idea what's going on inside of our own heads that you know the one analogy I was reading this recent book that was talking about kind of the sort of resurgence of non-conscious processing or the recognition that so much of what's happening in our brain is outside of our conscious awareness that I think it was someone maybe it was Freud maybe not Freud but said that you know the consciousness was like the the iceberg that there was the tip of the iceberg and then there was the mass below the iceberg and this person was saying that maybe it's more like a snowball on top of the iceberg that it's really that the the vast bulk of what's going on in our minds is is sort of outside of what we would call conscious awareness that we can yeah. point to it and say ah that's what's happening and so that's that's certainly true for learning and so often what's happening is we are not actually we don't actually have access to our our ability to know whether we've remembered something. We don't actually have access to knowing what we've learned and what we haven't learned. So instead, we we use these sort of proxies. We use these kind of substitute things that can often indicate, hmm, well, when this tends to, when I feel this, it means that I usually learned it. So one of the ideas proposed by R.A. Bjork is the idea that fluency of processing so that when you're thinking about something, if it feels easy, it feels like easy to think about it, then that's evidence that you've learned it. And that often is the case Except, however, that there are different studying techniques that you can apply. And sometimes the studying a technique which is the most disfluent, the one that is the hardest to do, is actually much more effective for improving your long-term retention. And so there's a lot of little scenarios like this where your intuitions about how much you're learning are often contradicted by reality. Another really great study I found uh, was talking about teacher evaluations. And so we've known for a long time, for instance, that doing kind of active learning where you are quizzing the students and the students actually have to participate and create things and answer questions is more effective than passive kind of, you know, kind of 
entertainment style learning where you're mostly just kind of doing something that's fun and entertaining. However, students don't like that style of learning that they give teachers who do the effective approach bad teacher evaluations. And it might also be the case. I was talking to a, a colleague of mine who was a who used to teach adult education, he was talking about studies that they worked on, where it also turns out that this sort of kind of fun style of teaching, students often say that they learn more in those classes than the ones that there were quizzes. And I think this is related to this fluency of processing, that when something was fun and engaging and interesting, mm -hmm. you substitute that for learning, as opposed to when something was hard and you actually had to think about it and you didn't get the right answer always, you said, well, I, I didn't learn anything in that class, but it's exactly the opposite, that it's the class that you were actually yeah. doing something strenuous to your brain, that you were actually pushing yourself and learning something new. Yeah, that's somebody, I once heard someone said something like, if you make people think they're thinking, they'll love you. But if you make people think, they'll hate you. <laughs> they'll hate you. Well, that is a that is a great summary of that exact concept. And so I think... You know, it's, it's, I'll put up this. This is my new opinion that I want to state because every time I have these podcast conversations, I get a lot of people who want me to, you know, talk about why is school bad and why are there problems with the education system? And I don't want to say there's no problems with the education system. I have many critiques in that direction. But I personally believe that most of the problems with the education system are with the students and not with the teachers. And I know that's a little bit of an illogical thing because the students are the students. You know, we, yeah. we as the teachers or the education establishment, we need to change our ways. But I think very often it's the case that what students like and what they want is not actually that correlated with learning and with goals that we might have for them or we might have for ourselves. And so I think that the first place to start in changing our education system or the first place to start in changing how learning works is to kind of look deeply at yourself and look at, you know, what are the ways that I take the easy way out and I don't actually really understand things? What are the ways that I just consume superficial information and don't really dive deep and master hard skills? And so if you can confront that and reflect on your own habits and tendencies to do that, I think you'll get a lot further than just by blaming teachers for not teaching you the right way. Yeah. No, I, I can totally see that. And, you know, here school started just a month or so ago and our 12-year-old came home and started giving me, like from the first week of school, started giving me the whole spiel about we're just creating factory workers and yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. this is not even the way that we're optimized as human beings and all this. And I'm like, I don't disagree with you, but <laughs> <laughs> you still have to go, you know. Well, and again, and she's not entirely wrong about things. I think that there are deficits in our education system that I'd like to remedy. And, and I think that there are probably better ways of doing things. But at the same time, I think the way that I feel about it is that if you take the perspective of the learner and ask yourself, what's the way that I can effectively learn this material and leave the world as it is, you know, leave the colleges where they are, leave the books and classes, leave everything else in place. And you just look inward and ask yourself how you can make changes to learn better and to improve your own ability to acquire knowledge and skills. There's a lot you can go there. There's a yeah. lot that can be done just from that perspective. And so that's the perspective I've taken in this book. And it's the one that, you know, I think it's a it's a healthier perspective because if everything that's wrong is outside of yourself, then yeah. there's not really much you can do about it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I want to go back for a minute to this thing about, about focus and narrow focus mm -hmm. and diffuse focus. And, you know, I had a friend when I, I had a friend who he was only, when I started writing, he, seriously, he was the only one I knew who was already a New York Times bestselling author. So I called him mm. to learn from his experience, which I think is kind of part of your meta learning principle number one of drawing yeah. a map, right? Yeah. So, so I started doing this research 
And, and he was in his 60s. And one of the things he said to me was how he doesn't now, in his sixth, sixth decade of living, have the stamina he once had to write like he once did. Mm. And I thought, it's writing. Like, what do you, how hard could it be? Like, what are you talking about? You know? And, and so this is the thing with this, this state of arousal. And, and mm-hmm. I love this distinction between a narrow focus and a diffuse focus and how they're different and they're both useful in different scenarios. And I know a lot of our conversation was conceptual. We didn't talk about the specific applications and we don't need to go too deep. But the, the thing I want to ask you about specifically where all this is driving to is what have you found when it, what have you found to be effective when it comes to creating and sustaining that state, whether it's focus or diffuse, that allows you to be successful in whatever your learning objective is? So I think I want to talk about the first, this comment about stamina, because I think that's another sort of misconception is that mental events are not strenuous, which I mean, we all have so much experience where using our brain feels tiring. And so it seems crazy that we would think that. But at the same time, pound for pound, your brain consumes more energy than pretty much anywhere else in your body that like your brain is extremely expensive in terms of the amount of energy it consumes. And it seems to be the case that while there a lot of that is just required, just doesn't matter what you're thinking about, it requires that much energy to go and run. But it seems also to be the case that the more you are thinking and the more you are dealing with things that require a lot of conscious effort, that it consumes it even faster. So it seems to be the case that there is some sort of rationale, at least, for mental strenuous work to be tiring, kind of in the same way that if you were running a marathon or doing something else strenuous. And I think that when we're talking about focus, so I kind of have two approaches when I'm talking about focus that I think are are useful to think about. So one of them is a logistical approach. So one of them is about how do you make sure that there's time on your schedule to actually do the thing that you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, I think the best step you can do is have a project. So don't just have some vague desire to learn something. Don't just say, oh, I'd really like to learn Spanish. That's not a project. I'd really like to learn X is not a project, right? A project is, okay, I'm going to work on this skill. I'm going to work on it in this way. I'm going to use these resources. I'm going to, and you actually put time in your calendar. You put time and it doesn't matter that it's a hundred hours a week. It could even just be an hour a week or two hours a week, but you put the time in there and you show up and you do it. And this is, I think, pretty obvious stuff, but I think at the same time, a lot of us just kind of want learning to happen and we're not willing to actually give it time on our calendar. And if you're not willing to give it time on your calendar, it's just not going to happen. That's just how it is, right? It's okay if you say you don't have any time in your calendar, you're not going to do any learning, that's fine. But at least admit that to yourself. It's better that than saying, well, you know, I've done nothing and nothing's worked. So why is that happening? You know, like it's, it's, there's a lot of uh, situations like that. So this logistical approach, I think is really important. Also, because it creates a kind of psychological readiness that if you are thinking about, let's say I'm going to work on becoming a better writer over the next three months and I'm going to work on research and storytelling and my prose and all these kinds of things and you decide to carve up some time of the day to work on these projects. If you, while you are putting the time on the calendar are saying to yourself, yeah, I'm not going to do this, then already you know that this project is not very well formulated and you have to go back to the drawing board or you have to relook at your motivation or you have to relook at how much time you're trying to put in. And I think that's very good to get that kind of hard look at yourself. So logistics is very good because just having the time, just having a space to actually go down there and do the thing that you want to do for learning is so important. 
The second thing I think is not so much a logistical end, but the kind of emotional or psychological end of things. Because as I've already talked about, effective learning is often strenuous. And just like we would prefer to sit on the couch than, you know, maybe run a marathon. (laughs) Similarly, when there is an option between something easier and something harder, the thing that's somewhat harder often has a little bit of resistance. We often, you know, maybe are like, oh, I don't really want to do that right now. Or I'm tired. I don't want to use my brain in that way. Or I don't want to actually think about it. And so the interesting thing about this is that very often those feelings are not constant over the length of time you spend practicing. So if let's say you were to study French, let's say you were learning French and you decide that you're going to have, you know, this half hour tutored conversation with someone where you're you're having a little bit of back and forth. And now you might have a large resistance to doing that right in the beginning. But if you could actually like weigh in, I haven't done this experiment, but I imagine if you could just weigh in and just like, you know, if there was a little buzzer that rang at random intervals and you just said, how much resistance are you feeling doing this activity? My guess is there'd be a lot of, there'd be a big spike at the beginning where you have a lot of resistance to getting started right before you make the decision to do it. And then there would be some random spikes throughout whenever you're experiencing some frustration, but they wouldn't be nearly as large. And so a lot of the key to actually achieving focus, whether again, it's diffuse or a real concentrated focus is about how do you manage those spikes? So it's not about how do I have endurance so that I can last over hours and hours and hours. It's how do I manage those little blips of emotional resistance that I'm going to encounter. So dealing with procrastination, the easiest way is how do you chunk it down so that you have enough momentum to get started. So things like the five minute rule where you just say to yourself, okay, all I have to put in is five minutes after five minutes. If I don't want to do any more, I'm done. It's way easier to commit to five minutes than an hour. However, after you start doing it for five minutes, that can become 10 or 20 or that, more. That five minute rule is magic. Yeah, it's huge. And it's just because of that very reason that very often we think about it in this big, long, oh, this is three hours. I don't want to do three hours right now. But if you said, okay, I'm just going to do five minutes, you can do five minutes. Hey, thanks so much for listening to part one of my interview with Scott Young. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.